In this podcast, Rishad Tobakawala, Chief Growth Officer at Publicis Group, talks about staying human in the age of data. So, stay tuned. So, welcome everyone to Future of Data podcast. Today, we have with us an interesting guest. Uh, very few times, friends, um, do we got to talk to someone who are... Um, thinking on a topic which is very enlightening for an organization. And I think um, this topic is, you would be, you would have fun uh, with this conversation. So we have with us Rishad uh, Tobakawala. So let me give a brief bio and then I would let Rishad pitch in and, and fill in the void that I'll create um, shamelessly. Uh, Rishad uh, Tobakawala is the Chief Growth Officer at Publicis Group, an advertising and communication firm with 80,000 employees worldwide, hailed by Time Magazine as one of the top five marketing innovators and recognized by Business Week as one of the top business leaders. He regularly presents at keynotes at industry conferences, uh, speaks at global organizations such as Kellogg's, IBM, Amazon, Google and Facebook. With that, Rishad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and I'm uh, very happy to be here. Beautiful. So to kick it off, why don't you walk us through your journey? Like what brought you to today morning? Sure. So what brought me to this morning is I grew up in India. I had a, I was very interested in writing and in English, but my parents convinced me to go and do a degree in mathematics. And so I did a degree in advanced mathematics from the University of Bombay. And then I came to the University of Chicago for an MBA in finance and marketing. I graduated in 1980 and exactly one company gave me a job because I had no green card. Uh, and even in 1980, it was a little bit difficult. And I was only one of two mm -hmm. Indians in my class that year at the business school at the University of Chicago. And that company basically was Leo Burnett, which was an advertising agency. And I thought I'd stay there for two or three years, get my green card, and then go get a real job. Uh, 37 years later, I'm still in the Leo Burnett building, which is either a testament to loyalty or more mm -hmm. likely a testament to unemployability. Uh, but I have been in the same place. Though the last time my business card said Leo Burnett was 1994. So for the last 25 years, though I've been working in the Leo Burnett building, I've not been specifically working for the Leo Burnett company. So I joined the advertising agency, spent some years in account service, and then got involved in direct marketing. So they had a Leo Burnett direct marketing group. While doing that, in 1995, I convinced them to create a new group called the Interactive Marketing Group and then spun that off into a freestanding interactive agency called Giant Step. So that's when my Leo Burnett name disappeared and I was the president of Giant Step. I then helped uh, Leo Burnett Media become Starcom, which is a freestanding media company. And then that group of companies basically merged with another group of companies and created a company called Bcom3, which lasted for about a year before in 2002, the Publicis Group, which is a French holding company, uh, bought us. And, um, and then I was part of a company called Publicis Media and helped work with management to build a case that we needed to be more digital. And so we bought companies like Digitas and Razorfish and we created a unit called uh, Viviki. And over time, I moved up to the Publicis Group level 
uh, first as the chief strategist, then as the chief growth officer, uh, helped and worked with management to build the case for buying companies like Sapient and Epsilon. So the Leo Burnett company that I joined in 1982 had about 1,200 employees worldwide. Today I work for a company which has 80,000 employees worldwide. Uh, the Leo Burnett company, the 1,200 employees, about 800 of them were in the United States, 400 were outside, mostly in Europe. Uh, Publicis Group with its 80,000 employees, uh, the largest number are in the United States, and the second largest, which is over 15,000, are in India. So I went from a Chicago advertising agency to a global company with most of its business in the United States and most of its employees in the United States and in India. Interesting, fascinating, and I think um, uh, one thing. Um, so before we, we we jump into the the fun stuff, uh, talk to us about so your current role. Like, what's your day to day work looks like today? So my day to day work most recently, because my day to day work increasingly is becoming more focused on my next career of a book and other things. So my current role is more of a less a day-to-day -day role, but until recently, when I was the chief strategist as well as the chief growth officer, it was to work with our management teams to do three different things. Uh, the first is to make sure that strategically, we remain relevant to our clients. Our clients' demands were changing. We had new competitive sets. Our clients were you know, um, looking around to see who was best suiting them. Uh, and so built the case that we needed to be more digital, more uh, sort of technology able, more data able, which is one of the reasons why we bought the companies we did. Uh, the second is the way we did business had to change. We had to focus more on the client and overall delivering a holistic solution versus having a balkanized solution of different brands. So we have lots of different companies, Digitas, you know, Sapient, et cetera. Clients really don't care about the different brands. They just want their problem solved. So how do we sort of organize around that? And then the third is to aid the group client leaders. So each of our clients, the big 75, have a person who leads the business to provide them with the support and resources from other parts of the company so they could do their job. That's what it was. So it was a combination of strategy, a combination of trying to make sure that all the resources could be put to helping our clients grow. So the growth really came from growing because our strategy got us into areas that were important and growth most importantly came from helping our clients grow. And it's, uh, you know, relatively in the last year and a half, it's been sort of a tale of two cities, which is a lot of the new stuff we've done and a lot of the other stuff uh, we have been doing intensely well, like uh, the end of 2019, we won more new business than anybody else. Uh, on the other hand, some of our legacy businesses are falling faster than they have ever before. So as a result, we, instead of growing, are you know declining by what, minus 1%. So we have a big mm. part of our business that grows at 30 35%, another part that sinks. Um, and our hope is we've now got it set so in 2020 we will restore you know growth but it's a very important sort of uh, voyage over the last five years where we went from like in 2006 uh seven percent of our business was digital 
when we stopped counting, because now almost everything is, you know, flavored by digital, yes. in 2017, it was 57%. So we went from seven to 57. Uh, you know, similarly, we now have 15,000 engineers. Uh, seven years ago, we had probably 500. Uh, so we seem to have done all the strategic right things. We have all the right assets. Uh, the results aren't there yet, and hopefully it will come. But uh, it's uh, the ability to live through transformation as I have, which has in part hmm. helped me uh, inform the book that I wrote. Interesting, interesting. And and um, to our listeners and viewers um, who are not sure what Publicis Group does, if can you walk us through uh, briefly what, what they do? Sure. So uh, historically, we were an advertising and media communication company, which is still a large part of what we do, about maybe less than half. Um, and that is creating ads, but those ads aren't necessarily only TV ads or print ads but creating interactions and commercials of some sort, and then distributing them across television, online, search, right? That's one big part of our business. Um, and that's our traditional business. That business is, parts of it are growing and parts of it are declining. Mm. Uh, the other parts of our business, and all of this is sort of integrated, is a business that helps clients transform their underlying business. That's the sapient business, which is, not only do you have to change the way you engage customers, but you have to change the way you create services and experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's one. The other is our clients are looking for options and leverage so that they aren't completely dominated by an Amazon or Facebook or Google, who mm -hmm. are very important partners. But as you can see, anybody who partners with these companies without having options eventually loses all control, mm -hmm. right? So those are why we made... Uh, investments in companies like Epsilon, which mm. allows clients' first-party data, you know, to be utilized by them and to be shared with other clients in the right way, in a way that's, you know, consistent with privacy and consumer uh, approval. So basically, we now call ourselves from being an advertising and communication company, which is our historical, mm. to being a marketing and business transformation company, which mm. is how do you rethink your marketing and how do you rethink your business. So we are aware there are three intersections, the intersection of marketing communication, the integration of technology services around marketing, and the integration of strategy. So you combine strategy and you combine marketing services and technology services that are marketing-driven. So it's the area where we both partner with, but at the edges we compete with you know, we will partner with a McKinsey and a Bain, but we will compete with a Accenture and Deloitte. Accenture Interactive and Deloitte mm -hmm. Digital, not mm -hmm. regular Accenture and regular <laughs> Deloitte, right? Um, and that industry is three times the size of the marketing communication industry. So the marketing communication industry is about $500 million globally. And this industry where these three come, come together is about a $1.6 trillion industry. Hmm. Uh, so that's what we now are, a marketing and business transformation company coming from the roots of being a media and advertising communication company. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website First Friday Fair. .tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. 
interesting. And I think one thing that I found really fascinating uh, before uh, uh, I start reading your book, um, let me give you, so uh, I think this is a yes. fascinating book, by the way. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, sure. So one thing that I, I found really fascinating about, about this book, um, uh, uh, so first thing first, your, your journey through this media yeah. evolution, right? So how media has evolved and how yes. the media and communication industry has evolved. Um, could you uh, or would you walk us through some of the transformational changes that 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 you because I think media has always been in the forefront of data. So whether yes. you call it focus group in the past, whether you call it sort of one on one a lot of interviews and focus groups, and now a lot of data is feeding. Whether you call it interacting with Nielsen data and and figuring out the consumer demand and acting on it, how has the the data sort of revolutionize um, uh, the like your industry, and 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 what do you like? Explain us or or help us understand that. So, you know, advertising has been around for a long time. So let me start with what I remember of it, which is when I joined in 1982. Uh, in those days, I built the case that there was a new media coming called cable television. Okay, so in 1982, there was literally three television networks, and a fourth one was coming, which was Fox. Uh, you basically had four magazines groups like Hachette and Condé Nast and Hearst, you know, in time. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a relatively simple time. But when you began to have cable television, you began to have some form of fragmentation. And as you began to have that fragmentation, and you begin to have the earliest computers coming out, you began to have data. And so the media companies now had to actually figure out a little bit more about who their audiences were and where they had to place their money because it was no longer placing it in one of four places. It was placing in one of 30 places or 40 places. And that was the beginning of what was known as the rise of the unbundling of the media companies because the media companies were more about currency of media, currency of impressions, reach, which are getting more fragmented. And they were the first sort of computer-driven programs uh, which different companies had, which we had to invest in. But the real shift, and it's uh, something that I mentioned in the book, occurred in 1998. So even though I launched the first online marketing group for us in 1995, it was really in 1998 that we got into a very interesting world, which is what I call the first connected age. And the first connected age is basically built around uh, the World Wide Web as created by Tim Berners-Lee in Switzerland and as sort of democratized by Mark Andreessen and the Netscape browser, okay? So around 1998 is what I call the first connected age. And in the first connected age, two things happened. You clicked on a link and you got to a particular place and a company that figured out how to best optimize where you could go which was Google, right? <coughs> creating a rank called PageRank, became a very powerful company, which is you connected to information and the company that best linked you to information was Google. Uh, another gentleman moved from, from New York to Seattle and he said, why do I only connect to information? Can I connect to something else? Like maybe I can sell mm -hmm. a book. And so he created a company called Amazon. So the first connected age, which began in 1998 and went up to 2007, you connected to information and the dominant company in the Western world was Google. 
you're connected to transactions and the dominant company was Amazon. Obviously you have Chinese equivalents, right? Um, in 2007, we began the second connected age. And the second connected age builds on the first connected age. Now, the moment you basically began to have search, you began to have a lot of data about how do you optimize search, especially when search was something possibly opposite of what everybody believed, which is up to now, search basically meant you bid for advertising, you bid, you know, you should use to buy, but now it was basically at how much you spent and how relevant the ad was. So you began to have things like SEM, SEO, which is all data driven. And the transactions basically meant for those who were direct marketers online, you actually now could actually figure out what you ended up selling. So that, that became very data driven. But in 2007 is the real explosion in data happened because of the second connected age, which two things. One is because of around 2007 is when Facebook went from .edu to .com. Twitter was launched and LinkedIn was launched all around 2007, the 2006, 2008 period. We were now connected to everybody. Mm. At the same time in 2007, you had the smartphone. And so now we were connected all the time. And when we were connected all the time and connected to everybody, the amount of data exploded. Because in effect, you had continuous connections and connections with massive graphs. And the company that dominated that was Apple and Facebook. So that was the second connected age. And that gave birth to massive amounts of data. And companies that were very powerful, in fact, when I gave a talk in early 2019, the five most valuable companies in America, four of the five were driven by data, Amazon, mm. Google, Facebook, and to a certain extent, Microsoft and Apple, which are the other two, right? Microsoft having big, and Apple not freely sharing the data, but obviously having a lot of data, you know, on their phones, et cetera. And now we've entered the third connected age, which began in 2017. And that has four new forms of connections. And this all builds on each other. So the first connected age is connected to information and connected transactions still important. Mm. connected all the time and connected to everybody still important but now there are four new forms of connection the first one is data connecting to data which is the simple way that i try to explain machine learning to people right which is data mm. writing software uh, mm. and so that's number one things connecting to things which is the internet of things mm. much faster ways of connecting which are coming by 2021 2022 which is 5g which is 100 times faster than current. And fourth is new ways of connecting, of which voice is the first interface, and maybe AR and VR, maybe other interfaces. And so, you know, CES, which launched today, mm. uh, if you read some of the early press, uh, a lot of the key things is about how Amazon Alexa is everywhere, Amazon Fire is everywhere, the Fire Stick. So in effect, what you now basically have is this amazing age where if you look at like an Alexa, right, uh, it's, it's in, or an Echo, it's all of these things together. It's basically a, uh, a machine learning, that's what mm. runs this. It's Internet of Things, which is an Echo, is an Internet of Things with Echo Dot. It's a new interface, which is voice. And eventually it'll become smaller and all over the place because of 5G and other forms of connection. And that will give birth to a whole bunch of data. And in fact, now companies that have data, and uh, the reason why there is such a massive valuation for these companies is they've collected such an amazing data 
And in many mm-hmm. ways, two things really define machine learning, uh, the quantity and the quality of data. These people clearly have quantity, and to a certain extent, they may have quality. Interesting. So, uh, one more thing I'm, I was, um, I'm curious to learn from you. Um, I think, um, so you represent an industry that's almost at the forefront of this data gap gathering yeah. and, and you utilizing it to understand consumer behavior and all, right? So your industry has seen transformation quite a lot of time. Right, because yes. you want to be in the forefront, you want to be the first guy discovering things and telling the clients what 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 all discovery has happened. So, how do you uh, when we talk about culture, when we talk about say companies like GE or IBM's or like very um, any company that's larger in size, and you are pretty much yeah. fit in that 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 bucket as well, it's very difficult to transform. Right? Yes. It's very difficult to move them to this, okay, now there's a new reality of connected age, now there's new reality of data age. So how do you, um, or what are some of the secret, or what are some of the tenets that helped um, sort of, say, pub- group company like Publicis Group or, or the, any media empire to, to grow um, through this transformation? Like what are some of the hacks that you could share that has helped um, make sense of and then grow with that? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. So over the years, you know, we like all companies are struggling and to a great extent, there are people on Wall Street who have given up on all the holding companies and basically mm-hmm. say, you know, we won't be able to adapt. Um, and they call us dinosaurs. Uh, as someone who's basically lived through this for the last 37 years, I don't think we're dinosaurs. I think we're cockroaches. Okay. Why, what, why do I call us cockroaches? Nobody likes us. People make fun of us. Mm-hmm. But cockroaches have outlived everybody. Mm-hmm. They've been around for 300 million years. What we do is we scurry around. We hide out in corners, we figure out what the right thing to do is, and we reinvent ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the process that we and our competitors are now basically doing. But in that process, we have learned a few things. And the three things that I basically always tell people about is the one. The first one is the future does not fit in the containers of the past, which is every business tends to be optimized for yesterday or today, right? Uh, one of the reasons like the taxis could not launch Uber is because the taxis were based on scarcity and medallions. And Uber wasn't built on cars. It was basically built on phones and software and location. Uh, so similarly, you know, uh, Gillette and Schick had trouble when you had Harry's and Dollar Shave Club mm. because it was no longer basically about selling through stores, but it was a subscription service. It wasn't about having the best product at the highest price. It was basically having at a convenient product and it worked at a value price. And so these things about completely new business models are extremely important. Like Mercedes and BMW are not competitors with each other. They really, their biggest competitors are Tesla, Uber, and maybe the fact that you know, automation will happen. And if so, what does it matter whether you have the ultimate driving experience if you're not actually driving the car? Right. So to a great extent, the first of the future does not fit in the containers of the past, which basically means we have to really look at disruptive and completely new models, which is one of the reasons we have reorganized ourselves. 
and spent $8 billion investing in companies that have got nothing to do, at least on the face of what we currently do, which is number one. The second is the future comes from the slime and not the heavens. Okay. And that, what I basically means is every market leader always competes with every market leader, but new competition comes from everywhere. So remember Nokia and Blackberry dominated phones, mm. but they could not believe that a phone without a keypad from a computer company called Apple, because that's what it was called, could mm. actually be a phone. And there they were, right? They didn't take Apple seriously. To a certain extent, Microsoft was not taken seriously by IBM. Mm. Google was not taken seriously by Microsoft. Despite everything that Google had, they did not know how to do social in Facebook, mm. right? Whether it was Google, you know, Wave, Google Plus, whatever, they didn't make it happen. In fact, fortunately, because Google bought Android, right, they managed to make it into the mobile world, but they didn't really make it into the sort of social world. Now, in some ways, they may be happy about that because that's become a world of trouble because of, you know, and they are somewhat exposed to it because of YouTube. But that's sort of a second thing. The third one, and this is the one that is the hardest, and this is the one because it's the people and culture thing, mm. which is the future will not align with you. You will have to align with the future. So often a lot of people basically complain about, you know, why do I need to do this? Can I retire? Why do I have to learn the new thing? And I said, you know, Humanity and society doesn't exist for you. Basically, genetics basically utilizes us as just as a way for genetics to keep going on. And so the reality of it is, if you don't want to be part of the future, the future doesn't need you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Right? So how do you actually get people to think about the future? And that requires three key things. It requires constant communication to tell them why. Very, very important, it basically requires incentives, which is mm -hmm. if you want people to behave differently, they have to behave differently, right? Which is the second thing. And the third that they often require is training. And mm -hmm. the whole idea is if you don't communicate, you don't train and you don't incentivize, but you just put out press releases and do M&A, you're not going to get to tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well said. So now let's let's get to the stuff. So um, restoring the soul of the business. Why write this book? So I wrote this book uh, because over the last five years, and as I mentioned earlier, I have an advanced degree in mathematics. I have a degree in finance and marketing from a very quantitative school. So therefore, it can be said that I am not an anti-data or anti-math person, right? However, I was beginning to recognize that over the last five years, both clients, organizations, and uh, all kinds of people were increasingly making decisions that were numerical primarily. So mm -hmm. I set up the hypothesis that a successful business requires a spreadsheet and a story. The spreadsheet is the data of a business, the math of a business, the profit and loss statements, the inventory and the economics. The story of a business is its purpose, its meanings, its values, its cultures, mm -hmm. right? And when you began to have companies like Wells Fargo, for instance, that basically said, we got to sell, we got to sell, we got to sell. So they started opening up fake bank accounts, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, to a certain extent, you're beginning to see the same problem with Boeing. Their whole stuff mm -hmm. is, let's just get the 737 max out. And even though we've got some issues, let's forget about those issues, what happens. So increasingly, these companies were 
thinking that by sp focusing on the spreadsheet, they were actually destroying market value, which was number one. Mm. But the other was 57%, uh, Carlos Perrin report shows that 57% of employees in most firms are not engaged with work, mm. okay? Because they don't find it useful. Because the reality of it is all of us, while we like money, fame, and power, we actually work for more than money, fame, and power. Obviously, we want money, fame, and power. But it's more than money, fame, and power. We also are basically looking for individual growth. We're looking for working with companies that give us purpose and meaning. And we're looking at connections with people and bosses and colleagues. And those three are, by the way, the story part of the business. And companies that successfully have this, the story and the spreadsheet beat most companies that were only spreadsheet. So, for instance, mm -hmm. Costco for years did better than Walmart, even though they paid higher, mm -hmm. right? If you think about it, Southwest Airlines does much better than United Airlines, right? right? And my whole stuff is, and if you think about those, 85% or 90% of the airline business is either commodity or regulated, mm -hmm. Right, they use the same planes, they use the same airports, they've got certain FAA and other rules, but you can have big differentiation. But where the differentiation was, was in the story part of the business. But on the other hand, if you only have the story part and in the data driven, fast moving age, you forget the spreadsheet part, you also lose. Right, mm -hmm. so people basically say, Hey, it's all about you know storytelling. No, it's more than storytelling because you really have to have much more than that. So it was a reason I wrote the book, which is, hey, listen, the success of businesses are story and spreadsheet. But because everyone is so fascinated by the Googles and Amazons and Facebooks, because there's so much data, data is easy to deal with. Silicon mm -hmm. chips are easy to deal with. But I try to explain to people, yes, we're living in a silicon-based, data-driven, right, uh, digital age. But you and mm -hmm. I are not digital, we're analog. Mm -hmm. We're not silicon we're carbon based right and we're not data driven we're feeling filled and time after time we make decisions using our hearts and we use numbers to justify what we just did and if that wasn't true then why are two of the five most valuable european companies luxury brands like mm -hmm. caring and lmvh right mm -hmm. why the hell do people buy apple which captures 80 to 90 percent of the profits when technologically and cheaper, you can basically buy a whole bunch of other phones. Desire, design, provenance, all of these things matter. And so my whole stuff is if you build a business that's completely data-driven, if you build a career that is completely data-driven, in effect, you are commoditizing yourself and you'll be replaced by a machine and a computer. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. I think that's that's a, that's a fascinating thought. So um, um, I remember so uh, talking to a, uh, an MBA school local in Boston here and I was I was telling their, their passing graduates that uh, 2018 and 2017 were some, or 2016 were some of the fascinating years for anyone who is really want to understand the data. So if, if you look at all the political movements, if you if you look at all say Brexit movement, where you think about sort of US elections um, with, with with Hillary and and, and, and and Trump in it, and then you see what data predicted. 
and what happened, uh, yes. right? So it was a clear understanding of that, hey, if we rely too much on data, which is which could be tainted uh, depending on data is as good as the sources it's feeding from. So I think that's why when, when, I, when I was reading this book, I found really refreshing to, to see uh, a voice pitching businesses, hey, you know, try to unleash from sort of too much math. Yes. And I think I, I, I love your statement that, hey, math is good, but don't forget the mission. Yes. And, and, the, and it's together, which is my open chapter is too much math, too little meaning. Yes. Right. So how do you combine math and meaning? And because of my pioneering in digital and pioneering in a lot of mathematics and data, I can say this without being basically some guy who is clueless. I might be clueless, mm. but at least I have on paper appeal not clueless, <laughs> which, is, which, which is number one. But as importantly, <laughs> when you even think about, let's, for instance, the United States election, right? Mm. If you look at the United States election, in February of 2017, I spoke actually to 5,000 people at Facebook. And the elections had just got off. I mean, the elections were over in November, but the new president had just been sworn in. Mm. And this was obviously in San Francisco, and people were obviously, it's a, it's a very, you know, sort of uh, democratic state, and a lot of these people were, like, upset. And I made a mention that says, hey, make no mistake, you were part of why the elections resulted the way this was. Because if you tell me that I can micro-target to sell toothpaste, I can micro-target to do all kinds of amazing things, like suppress voting, right? And and in effect, what tends to basically happen, the way the Trump campaign, with Facebook's help, they had Facebook people sitting in the Trump campaign, which Mm -hmm. unfortunately Hillary did not have, not because they weren't available, but she did not ask, right? Mm -hmm. They combined very interesting modern math and data, but they combined it with emotion. And what was the emotion that they combined it with? They combined it with a certain amount of emotion where people do not like people who are not like them as they were losing jobs and they were beginning to have to blame somebody. So they basically blamed people like you and me because we look different. Okay. And that underlying emotion that people have these emotions and they make decisions on these emotions, even though it's not rational, because in effect, the number of immigrants coming in are not coming in from Mexico. They're coming in from Central America through Mm -hmm. Mexico. But the largest Mm -hmm. number of immigrants are really coming in on an airplane from India Mm -hmm. and China and other places. You can't build a 32,000 foot wall. But who wants Mm -hmm. to have all of that? There's this emotional resonance that you can basically go into. And we have that. And so they combine data with emotional understanding, right? And that's what I keep telling people. You have to combine the two. Yes, in that particular case, depending on what your political affiliation is for good or bad outcome, but Mm -hmm. that's the way to do things. Right. right. And, and, and in effect, that is what we sort of constantly remind people. It's combining the two versus just the data or just the story. So the story of having the first woman president without any of the data driven understanding of what mm. was going on didn't get the first woman president elected. Mm. That's I think that's that's a beautiful point. So. Um, so what is the resolve? Like, how do you stay human in the age of data? Like, what are some of what are some of the recommendations that 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 you sort of are providing to help us understand that? So the first, what what the, the way the book is set up is I set up three challenges we all have. 
The first one, I basically say too much math, too little meaning, and why we now have given ourselves into data and why we have to watch for that because data is going to become more and more impactful in the future. The second is what I call the darker side of brighter screens, which is in a distributed workforce, not only that you and I are looking at you know, user interfaces and screens, but when you begin to have things like hot desking and WeWork and a whole bunch of other places, how do you manage people? How do you manage cultures when everybody is in a world of screens, right? Uh, the good news about that is you and I can have this podcast. The good news is people who have to look after families and aging parents can work. You can mm. basically have people from other countries. So there's a lot of amazing opportunities that distributed, flexible, you know, technology-mediated workplaces afford, and I believe in those. But at mm. the same stage, how do you create teams when, for instance, when people are sitting with everyone got a headphone because they don't want to actually listen to anybody else mm. because they're working in open spaces? So, And then the third one is how do you create a – purpose and meaning at work because in effect if we spend a majority mm -hmm. of our world and people are getting disenfranchised how does that work so the three challenges is too much math managing a culture of screens mm. and trying to find purpose and meaning which is more than just how do I get a job right so those are the challenges we currently have and then what I then provide are seven ideas that have worked and they, they have worked because I did a lot of research and study for this book. So it wasn't just what I observed in 40 years across hundreds of companies around the world. It wasn't what I myself experienced because those two might have been interesting, but are not interesting enough. Okay. Mm -hmm. It was also, I did months of study. I actually took 50% uh, of my time off for a year just to study for this book. So I studied a lot. And so I began to come up with these seven things that seem to be the way forward. And some combination of these seven based on a person's particular preference is the right thing. So these are what they are. So one is, I simply basically say the turd in the table. How do you tell truth to power, right? Which is our ability to speak freely is extremely important. As I tell people, diverse faces are not the same as diverse voices. Right? Getting people who look differently but not letting them express themselves is not exactly diversity, right? You need diverse spaces. That's necessary, but you also need to have an environment. So that's number one. Number two is the recognition that change sucks. And how do you get people mm -hmm. to overcome change? Because it sucks. But on the other hand, irrelevance is even worse. Third is why you should have more physical meetings versus less physical meetings. But how do you run those meetings and what are the different kinds of meetings? Another one is, you know, today I just got an up, a thing that I have to upgrade my, uh, you know, Mac OS, right? Because I'm in the beta program. So there it's 10.15 something. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's the 10th operating system, you know, Catalina is the 10th Mac OS. Mm -hmm. If you have an iOS, it's the 13th operating system. But most human beings are probably at a second operating system. So a big part of my book is how do you upgrade your mental operating system, which is how do we all to continue to learn, right? And how do we actually sort of grow? Another one is what's the importance of art in business? We are forgetting mm -hmm. how important art mm -hmm. is, right? So the whole idea is have more meetings, upgrade your mental operating system, tell truth to power, recognize the chain sucks. And in each of these, 
I describe how different companies, including the Amazons and Apples of the world, but the Southwest and the Sloan Ketterings are all sort of adjusting. And then I end the book really with two things that are extremely important, which is what's the difference between us and robots? So my current basically belief is, you know, till we get to Blade Runner 2049 or whatever, my basic belief is that, you know, robots compute and people dream, right? Mm. So obviously, you know, do androids or whatever dream of sheep and all that maybe in the future, but that's one thing. Mm. And then the second one, which is the most important, is people follow people. So what does modern leadership look like? So the end chapter of my book is called Leading with Soul, right? Uh, which is a lot of it. But the book is written for a very interesting audience, which is when I first wrote the book and I was sharing the idea and I was writing the book with a very famous writer called Ken Aulera. So Ken Aulera um, is, has written 12 books. He has written for the New Yorker for 25, 30 years. Mm. He's a legend. In fact, he's the guy who figured out the Harvey Weinstein thing years before mm. anybody else did. But he couldn't get the right legal compliance to write. And he was the guy who took Ronan Farrow to the New Yorker so he could write the story. Wow. So he's like a legend, right? And he had written a book in my industry. And so I had been talking to him. And then I, you know, I said I was going to write a book. And he encouraged me to write one. But when I basically said what the target audience for my book was and how I was trying to do it, he basically said, I don't think you can do something like that, but try it, right? And so I said, my target audience is everybody in the world, right? And he said, how do you write a book for everybody? I said, anybody who has to deal with the following two things. You are dealing with technology, which is you're working with technology, mm -hmm. and you have to deal with people. So it's pretty much anybody who's in either school or at work, right? That has to do with technology or people who has also recently just retired. So as long as you have to deal with people and technology, right, this basically is, so it's obviously a, people don't have the technology and deal with people. It's not this book. So he said, can you actually write one like that? I said, yeah, because we keep thinking of people and microcosms, right? I'm writing for advertising people or I'm mm -hmm. writing for women. I said, I'm writing for humans. <laughs> okay. Which was, which was one of the key things. The second mm -hmm. one was I said, I wanted to write a book that addressed the three issues I had with most nonfiction books. So most nonfiction business books in their entire lifetime sell 5,000 copies. Okay. So nonfiction business book in its lifetime mm -hmm. on average sells 5,000. I've seen numbers of like 3,000, but let's say 5,000. Mm -hmm. So my whole stuff is why do nonfiction business books only sell 5,000 copies? Mm -hmm. And I came up with three reasons. The first reason is nobody wanted you to write the book in the first place. So a lot of this is vanity writing, right? Uh, the reason I took my, it's 40 years later, I've written my first book. For six, seven years, I was writing a blog and people said, you should write a book. I was giving answers to people and they said, no one's given us answers like this. You should write a book. So first was there has to be demand. And so I said, okay, how do I make sure that there is demand? I said, I'll try to get one of the two large publishers in America, which is Penguin Random House or HarperCollins, to actually give me an advance to write a book. Then I know there'll be demand, Right. <laughs> So that's what happened. So HarperCollins basically has published my book, right? Which is, which is number one. Number two is most business books should have only been one chapter. Mm. Most business books, if you read the first chapter, you get it. Mm. You don't have to read anything more because it's usually a Harvard Business School article that's been blown up into an entire book, mm. right? So what I basically said is I was going to basically write 12 different books in one book. So each chapter is standalone. 
it's, uh, it's instead of being a CD with one good song, it's a Spotify playlist okay, <laughs> with a theme. And the theme is the story and the spreadsheet. But how does the story and spreadsheet acquire the data? How does it acquire a culture? How does it acquire a business? And you can read any chapter in any order because we're in the modern age. That was the second one. And third is I'm going to write a most business books because it takes time to come out in a business book are filled with outdated case studies that are either irrelevant or outdated to puff up the book and they're irrelevant and outdated. So I wrote an entire book without any graphs, without any charts, and without any case studies. Right? A nonfiction business book without any of that. Uh, and so after I wrote it, I sent it to Ken Auletta, right? And said, hey, what do you think? And he was very good in that he basically said, I like it. So I said, good, I hope it wasn't bad. He says, it's more than I like it. He says, you don't know what you just pulled off, right? He said, I've got mm -hmm. some, you know, some thoughts on how to improve it. So I flew to New York, spent two, three hours with him, and he gave me some guidance. I also did a lot of other things, like I gave the book to 24 people, 12 men and 12 women, and got guidance. I was using like a piece of software. So it was like a minimum viable book, which I was improving, right? <laughs> and then when the book was done, Ken Auletta decided to write the foreword, okay? Mm. And he's written the foreword, and if you read mm. the foreword, he ends the book, right? Or ends the foreword, just a one and a half pages. He basically says, hey, this is not a book about advertising and marketing. This is a business book, and it's very much like In Search of Excellence, in a very famous book, right? But he says it's more than a business book. It's like a book of wisdom, like thinking fast and slow, right? But also it's fun and easy to read. So to have a major author that basically says, well-established author with a great mm -hmm. bit of credibility, that basically says this is a book that has traces of In Search of Excellence, which is an amazing book, or Thinking Fast and Slow, which is another amazing book, and is easy to read. Uh, is what I think I eventually did, which is why I'm proud of it. Now, hopefully, it'll sell more than a copy, uh, which is sort of good. And the good news is that we have already, in pre-orders, sold 5,000 copies. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think so. Uh, so I, I do have one brief critique about this yeah, book. Yeah. And I think you you beautifully captured that. So I, I find it that it could have been thicker. Like yes. it could have... So you, you, you rightly pointed out that um, it has a lot of good meat in it. Yes. And it could, it could, it could use some more uh, diving into because these are very, very critical soul searching questions for many yes. for leaders. So and exactly. And so what happens is the one way to think about it, I may have written the opening chapter to my 12 next books. I think that's a that's a that's a that's a fair fair right. Um, but 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 one of the analysis. key things I also discovered was that in today's time, if you basically make a book over three hundred pages, it doesn't sell. <laughs> so I did a lot of research. So thinking about data, I used a lot of data about books on how to write a book. Interesting, interesting. So um, beautifully put. So you talked about um, mental operating system. Like what exactly? Like, so, what is yeah. that? so the mental operating system goes something like this, which is we're living in a world where what differentiates you and me hmm. from a monkey is not our stomachs, but our brains. Okay. So the monkey and our, us have 98% or so of our genetic code is the same. Okay. So what makes us different? What makes us different is, is our ancestors discovered fire because they hmm. discovered fire. They could cook food. Because they could cook food, they use less energy to digest food. That energy went to build the brain, right? 
increasingly, if you look around today in American society, you find two fixations. And they're two rightful fixations, but they're two fixations. One fixation is on exercise and keeping fit. And the other one is on what we eat and keeping healthy. So we are thinking about what goes into our stomach and how we move our bodies. But what separates from our monkeys is not our bodies and our stomachs, it's our brains. So my whole stuff is, it's very important to have a physical operating system upgraded so we live. But what differentiates us and what makes life worthwhile is a mental operating system. But we aren't spending enough time figuring out what goes in our mind and how we exercise it. So my whole stuff is, and that's one of the reasons why we feel adrift with change because the world changes around us. Machines are learning more. Different societies are learning more. And we are not upgrading our own operating systems. And so I talk about how are different ways to upgrade operating systems because my basic belief is the only way a company transforms is by actually upgrading its people. Mm. Right? So it's either you upgrade people by training people or you bring in new people. But there's no other way a company upgrades. It isn't by building new factories and other kinds of ways. It's basically through people. But what makes people different is basically the mental operating system. So unless you upgrade the mental operating system and mental abilities of the people, you can't actually adapt to change and transformation. Uh, and how do you do that? And so some of the tricks I basically give are things that I've learned over the years on how to keep growing. Because people would sort of ask me, remember, I've worked at the same company for 37 years, right? Mm -hmm. When I first started work, <clears throat> the IBM PC had just come out and was a rare, rare thing, okay? It was mm -hmm. four years later that the first Mac came out, which was 1984. Mm -hmm. So I worked in a world where there was no Excel spreadsheet. There was not really, you know, there were middle-sized computers, like from DAC and others, there were no mini computers. There were no phones, there were no Facebook, there was no search, there was none of that, right? But over the years, I came to lead a lot of those efforts without ever having any of any knowledge, any training, anything when I first came to the world. But over the years, I learned these things. How did we learn? So these are all the things, I basically figured that out, and then I studied how other people were learning. And there are three or four things that I tell people. So the first one is, unless you invest one hour a day in learning new things, you are going to fall behind. Okay? So I get up every morning, like I did today, at 4.30 in the morning, and from 4.30 to 6 every day I study. Now, I, for me, it takes 90 minutes because I'm slower than most people, but I encourage people for an hour, which is, which is one. And I'm not saying you have to do 4.30 in the morning, but put a seven hours aside a week right, to learn, mm. because otherwise you won't. And what do you mm. learn? It could basically be simple, right? So I look behind you and I look at those books and I say, hey, you know what? I read all of them, right, excepting Team of Teams. So maybe I should read mm. Team of Teams, right? So it could be as simple as that. It could be you say something and I say, I have no clue what the hell they were saying, mm. right? But you have to put time to learn. That's number one. Number two is to keep your mind active. Try to do one new thing every day. Okay, And that could be going to a new restaurant, walking home in a different direction, try to do one new thing. Because just like in travel, when you fall mm. out of your itinerary, you pay attention. Otherwise, we are robots. We like automating things. The third, and this is the most important and the most difficult, is build a case for the exact opposite of what you believe. Okay, So for instance, I have built a very strong case 
as to why I believe, for instance, our current president is the best president in our history. Okay, and I can convince you of that pretty well. And just to let you know, because of my own background, I don't like him particularly. Okay, but in effect, my whole stuff is 37% of America loves him. They can't mm -hmm. be wrong. There has to be something mm -hmm. right. So what I don't mm -hmm. do is I try to see your other point of view. And in today's mm -hmm. world where we basically have, what do we have as the three big issues? We have polarization, lack of trust, and inequality, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So to build a case for the opposite, I can now talk to you. If mm -hmm. I can talk to you and engage with you, maybe we can have a conversation. Beautifully said, yes. Right? And so what tends to basically happen is, why believe the other person sucks? Maybe you suck. So I go into everything and say, hey, let's look at what the common ground is. But let me first understand where you're coming from versus saying because you're coming from something different, you are, are bad. So those are some of the things that I basically explain on ways to upgrade your mental operating system, including some of the utilities and things that I use, like how I use podcasts, how I use Evernote, you know, how I use Feedly, right? That there's actually technology that allows you to keep abreast. Like this is the first year that I'm not going to the CES for the, in six or seven years, right? Consumer mm. Electronics Show. But I can tell you without a doubt that I'll know more about the Consumer Electronics Show just because I've got a whole bunch of ways of keeping mm. abreast of it. Now, obviously, I won't have the physical interaction with my colleagues and all of that, but I'll be pretty updated, right? But that's because I've learned how to learn even if I am not there. Interesting. Wow. Uh, well said, and thank you for sharing that. So uh, one more thing that um, that I was uh, curious to learn about is how could one lead with the soul? So the very important. So there are two insights that I've had over the years, and the first insight is that people don't follow titles; they follow people. Okay. So you could say, I am the president of this, or I'm the chief of that, or I'm the leader of this. Mm -hmm. And people will follow only to a certain point, and they follow because you have the authority to fire them and to give them raises. But they're not emotionally following you. They will do what's necessary, mm -hmm. right? But people actually follow people because they stuff, I believe in you, I trust you, I think you have my better, you know, I admire you. So that people follow people, right? So that's number one. The second insight is each of us have in us the ability to be a good or a bad leader. So what I don't do is I don't say there are good leaders and there are bad leaders. I believe all of us have in us the ability to be a good or bad leader. But the good leaders tend to be good most of the time, and the bad leaders tend to be bad quite a bit of the time. And so what I say in Leading with Soul is – what are some of the things that people are looking for in leaders? Mm. And successful leaders have five qualities. One of the qualities is capability. They actually <coughs> know how to do things, right? Mm. The second one is um, integrity, which is you got to trust them. The third one is humility. <coughs> the fourth one is empathy. They can understand. And the fifth one is vulnerability that they can also say, Rick, I don't know what the hell's going on. So those are what I call it. And so those are what good bosses have. So can you try to have those? But we also be aware of what bad bosses are. And all of us on a bad day can be a bad boss. Mm. And bad bosses <coughs> have four characteristics. And these are 
different bosses may have one of these particularly. So one is called the narcissist, mm. right? Which is, it's I, me, mine. It's all about me. Who the hell cares about you? The second one is the micromanaging fiddler, mm. right? They come and they have to deal with everything because unless they manipulate the final thing, nothing happens. The third is what I call the Oscar contender. So the Oscar contender is someone who slams doors or sighs mm. or keeps quiet or yells. Mm -hmm. right? They want to win an Oscar, but they have turned out at work. Mm -hmm. And the last one is the double-crossing assassin, okay, mm. which you're aware of. So I figured out bad bosses are one of those four, good bosses are these, aware of those things, and then focus on, on how to be a good versus bad <coughs> boss, how to deal with bad bosses. And if you can't change a bad boss, how you should actually leave the company or get mm -hmm. to a different assignment. Because bad bosses, like bad apples, will eventually corrode you. So I've mm. seen very talented people mm. who have become corroded, right? Corrupted by bad bosses. And so that's what I talk about leading what's all. Interesting. Wow. Uh, beautifully said. Now, uh, one, more, one more question um, uh, regarding how could businesses strike a balance between, between data and creativity? Like, how do you... Or, or what, what's your take on that? So I basically believe there are two sides of the very same thing. So let me explain to you. So I've always believed that successful companies tend to have the following things, okay? Uh, you will not see a successful company which does not have a strong balance sheet. That happens to be a data-driven thing, right? If you do not have a strong balance sheet, sooner or later, mm. right, your vision will be seen as a delusion. So the SoftBank Vision Fund increasingly looks to me like a SoftBank delusion fund, right? WeWork had no fundamentals. The balance sheet was crap and it caught up. Mm. I think Uber, right, their stock will continue to fall. Their balance sheet is crap. So you have mm. to run a balance sheet-based business, right? So that's the data part of it, which is one part. Second is successful companies tend to basically have innovative cultures, right? And what is innovation? And for me, innovation is fresh, insightful connections. Mm -hmm. Fresh because it's new. It's insightful because it's driven by a human need. And it's connecting dots. And who are the best innovators in the world? Artists, creative people. Mm. right? Who are the best entrepreneurs in the world? I believe they're artists because mm. a painter starts with a blank sheet. A writer starts with a blank sheet. A sculptor basically starts with a stone or whatever it is, some wood, right? So they create and they frame things. They understand how to overcome trouble, right? They see things from different perspectives. And so in effect, strong balance sheet companies, strong is one part, and then the ability to innovate, because innovate also means failure. Your balance sheet mm -hmm. can help you offset that. It allows you to try different things. And so my whole basic belief is successful businesses like an Apple mm -hmm. right, or an Amazon or a Google. I mean, if you think about a list of products that Google has actually closed down, it's mm -hmm. 10 times larger than products they've brought to market. Right? So those mm -hmm. are the key things that... Successful businesses have those. There is no successful business that isn't story and the spreadsheet. Never. Mm. 
right? Mm-hmm. And my only problem is now everybody's so much in the spreadsheet that they're forgetting that. And to a great extent, also many businesses that become only spreadsheet businesses mm-hmm. eventually die by the spreadsheet because a business is totally driven by numerics. You're beginning mm-hmm. to see that to a certain extent, right? There are certain mm-hmm. challenges to Amazon, a company I admire greatly. But as I tell people, I love Amazon as a consumer. I'm not so mm-hmm. sure as a citizen, right? As a citizen, the impact it's having on society may not be that good. For me, mm-hmm. who wants to buy toilet paper or a book, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea True. is at some particular stage, we are human beings. We are citizens. We are mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and nephews and nieces. We're not just goddamn cows with which you send us messages and then we turn out milk that you can consume. Well, um, <clears throat> I think... Um, Thank you so much, uh, Rishad. Beautiful, beautifully said. So now uh, let's spend a few minutes on you. Uh, yes. We're at the tail end of, of this conversation. So we ask all of our guests to share some of the secrets or some of the tenets of their success, like some of the secrets that some of the qualities that they attribute their success to. Like what would what would your be? Like what would your qualities that really has helped you be what you are today? So there are two sets. Uh, one set is stuff that I did not control without which nothing would have happened. Okay. So one is I was born to parents in India who had the money to educate me. If I were born to parents in India who did not have the money to educate me, it didn't matter how good I was, which is number one. Number two, over time I was lucky where certain things happened and I happened to be at the right place at the right time. Mm. And the third is I was surrounded by amazing bosses and people. Mm. So my basic belief is if you've got the luck of parentage, the genetic lottery pool, which is number one, yeah. and you recognize that, two, sometimes you're at the right place at the right time, but most importantly, appreciate the people around you, including your bosses and people who help you. So those are a big driving factor. And those, by the way, have got nothing to do with me. Right. So that's one part. The second part, which has something to do with me, are the following. So the first one is patience. So I tell people that all of us, let's say you're a graduate from college today, you are going to have a 50 year career. Right. So why are you making decisions every three months? Mm. Right. So similarly to like say stock market, right? If somebody basically says, how do you invest in a stock market? I said, don't, don't, don't think too much about it. Just do three key things. Diversify with low cost index funds and hold for 10 years. Done. Right. So that's patience. You have to be basically patient. So plan your career in three to five year stages and don't plan your career in three to six month stages. That's number one. Mm. So why that means is because there are times in my career where I didn't like where things were. I may not have liked a boss. I may not have liked her stuff, but I didn't quit, right? Because I l- remembered Queen Elizabeth I, who says, time, solves more, time dissolves more problems than man solves, mm. right? So mm. patience. Mm. The second one, which is extremely important, is the ability to keep learning. So, uh, you know, I mentioned this in the book, and Satya Nadella has sort of reinvented uh, Microsoft using the growth mindset from Carol, you know, Dweck, right? So, in mm-hmm. fact, my agent is the same agent as the growth mindset 
you know, person, right? Wow. Right, right. But what basically tends to basically happen is the growth mindset, which is the ability to keep learning so you don't blame other people, the ability to basically overcome obstacles, right? Uh, those are some of the key things that are, you know, very involved with the growth mindset. So my ability to keep learning, which is upgrading my mental operating system, right? Uh, overcoming problems, and that's the second one. So one is the growth mindset, one is obviously patience. The third one is also extremely important, which is I pay a lot of attention to the other point of view. Okay. And as a result, I'm constantly building a case as to why I might be wrong, why my company might be wrong, why my management might be wrong. So for many of my, my so including my last two bosses, I spent a lot of time internally in their offices attacking them. Okay? Attacking the strategy we were doing, attacking all this kind of stuff. And sometimes I would do such a good job that this, I would recommend a strategy and I'd build a case as to why the strategy was wrong that they said, like, what exactly do you believe? You said mm -hmm. we should do this and now you've built this entire thing as to why it's wrong. And I said, because my job is to give you the options, mm -hmm. right? And then you all have to make the case. But in effect, I, how do we know we're right, right? So the entire idea of being humble because in effect, Nobody knows tomorrow. You know, people would often call me the futurist. I said, a futurist is a risky thing because mm. you'll be wrong often, right? So my only thing is very simply this. You can only beat the stock market if you know the future, right? Mm. Very few people know the future. Backwards, you can think about the future. Oh, yes, now it's clear that Netflix was going to be fine or clear, right? But forward, you don't actually think about it because I say, okay, tell me forward, you know, what are the next 10 companies, right? People mm. will say, I don't know. Right, they it, they have general areas. Okay, genetics and five G. Okay, but how do you know? And interestingly, mm. some of the most interesting companies were companies that were not the obvious companies. They were second order effect companies. So Airbnb was given birth to because of a combination of the recession, social networks. Right, is why Airbnb came out. If there was no recession and no social networks, there would be no Airbnb. So if I sat there and just thinking about social networks and recession. I wouldn't basically give right of a company where people are basically lending out rooms, mm. right? So it's, those are the key, key, key sort of things that I do, which is the growth mindset, the patience, right? And a certain amount of like, don't take yourself too seriously. Mm. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. And um, um, one question uh, we ask all of our guests to talk about is some of their favorite reads. Some of the books that that really help, like they that they really like to lead, read, or that's that really help them dif be what they are. Like, what 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 are some of your your favorite reads that you could share? So uh, I would separate the my favorite reads into four sets of books. So I have four sets mm -hmm. of books. Okay, the first one I strongly recommend to people is to read one of the following two books, ideally both. One is called Ada Karadina, and another one is called Madame Bovary, right? And one is by Leo Tolstoy, one is by uh, Gustave Flaubert, and they are two of probably the five most amazing novels ever written in the world, 
right? And of course, we'll be reading them in English translation from Russian and French, but mm. they're amazing because in effect, they basically tell you two simple things, the power of observation, mm. power of empathy, and the ability mm. to have an understanding how our people are. And by the way, some people may protest that both of these books are written by men about women, but they're amazing books. Okay, so mm. that, that is sort of, so the idea is literature allows you to understand mm. other points of view. So that's what literature is good for. So that's one. And there's modern literature I'm reading a lot of, but that's, mm. uh, and for if you don't have time to read those, uh, what I would recommend is there's a book called the Pushcart Prizes. Mm. Okay. It's a big fat book that comes out once a year. The 2020 edition has come out. And it is amazing writing and poetry and essays, right, which are off the time. Uh, so read those or read Best American Short Stories, Best American Essays, Best American Travel Writing, which is more mm. modern. So there's an entire idea of what I call writing writing, right? Mm. There's a second group, which I think are fundamentally extremely important, which are modern nonfiction, which gives you sort of points of view. So there's a mm. book by a lady called Gia Tar Tarantino and uh, the, the book is called uh, Trick Mirror, right? And she basically mm. is a 30-year-old person who writes for the New Yorker. Uh, uh, I think of Philippine and other ancestry, but she writes about today's modern online and digital marketplace. Amazing writer, you know, interesting perspective. I see, you know, you've got basically one of Yuval Harari's books, one of his latest mm -hmm. books. Uh, he's known for, this is his latest book, and he's obviously known for Sapiens. Sapiens but, I believe, years, yeah. but I believe his best book is Overdue, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, right? Because that one is about, actually the closest to my book, because it's about, he calls about the religion of data. He calls it dataism, mm -hmm. right? So his book is about data and about biotechnology and you know, singularity. But that's another book that I find particularly sort of important in, in, in sort of uh, modern fiction, a uh, modern nonfiction. So from G.R. Tarantino to, to those. And then there are a couple of others which are a little bit unusual uh, that I suggest people read. And that is there is a periodical, uh, three periodicals that I would basically tell people to read. None of them are cheap. None of them are free, right? Uh, two all three are available online, but are primarily written for the print version, but they're available online. So one mm. is called the Paris Review, okay? And the Paris Review is a book of writing that comes out every quarter. Uh, Interesting. And basically it is modern writing, and so you, and it's got art in it, it's got paintings, it's got amazing, so Paris Review. The other is called the New York Literary, the, the New York Review of Books. But really what it is, it's amazing essays. So, you know, it's fantastic essays, including essays by this lady called Zadie Smith, who's one of the best writers ever. Mm. Right? She wrote White Teeth and a whole bunch of other stuff. And the third one is The Economist magazine. Mm. Okay. Uh, and you might say, okay, so you've basically given Madame Bovary and other kinds of stuff and modernized it. You've given us Yuval Harari. You've given us these three. So what's the fourth section? The fourth section, interestingly, is not books. I think the highest, while I love books and I continue to read books, I think we're today in an age where the highest art form is television. Okay? And that today's modern television 
if you pay attention to it, is absolutely amazing if you decide what to watch, right? Mm. So I would recommend to people that they should watch the following two things. Mm. And one of them they're going to have to pay for uh, because they're going to have to sign up to HBO. The other one, if they've got Netflix and somewhere on Amazon, they will basically sort of see it. And, and they come with sort of a duality. So one of it is called a show called Better Call Saul. Okay. Mm. And Better Call Saul <laughs> is, the pre, is sort of the prequel to Breaking Bad. Right? right. But I can assure you as someone who's a big Breaking Bad fan, Better Call Saul is better than Breaking Bad. Right. Okay? I agree. Uh, so, so that's number one. And the reason is it's the same people right? But who are creating 10 years later with modern Mm -hmm. technology. So that's number one. And the other one is a show which you have to watch all nine episodes to completely get it. And I'd be on a big screen. It's called Watchmen on HBO. Mm. But when you watch those two, each of them have a podcast where the actual creators are explaining what they do. So you watch it and then you listen to the podcast and you understand more about storytelling, emotion, craft, and art like never before, right? So a combination of the world's best television with the creators describing how they provide is my fourth set. Be- I think it's, it's a beautifully laid out. All props to you. Like, you know your stuff. So. Well, so. Remember, remember, I have to upgrade my mental operating system. It shows. It it definitely shows. So yeah, it's it's a very busy uh, uh, interview. So uh, thank you so much. It's it's pretty nice. And now, last but not the least, um, if you want uh, the listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, like what would be your closing remark? What would be your um, takeaway for listeners and viewers? So there there's two. One is unselfish, and one is selfish. So let me do the unselfish because that's more important to their viewers than the selfish, right? And that is, I would basically tell everybody who listens to the show that they can be successful if they become their best own friend, okay? That very successful and driven people sometimes punish themselves and don't, aren't gentle enough with themselves as they need to basically be. Because we always think about the opportunity we missed, the meeting we didn't do particularly well. Why don't we do this? Why we do that? And, you know, the way we live our lives or the way we spend our days is the way we spend our lives, right? And time is the only thing you have. And if you're all the time worrying about how you can get better, you don't actually live at all. So that's my thought mm-hmm. there, right? And a lot of the listeners on this show are successful people, the watchers and viewers. And so the whole idea is, hey, be a little gentle and forgive yourself. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the selfish one, is basically go to Amazon, type in R-I-S-H-A-D, and what will pop up is my book, and pre-order or buy it. Will do. I think that's that's beautifully said. And to our listeners, viewers, so we'll put the link um, on on the description as well. Perfect. And do read. It's 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 a. I think it's a. It's again, as I said, it's a beautifully put. Lot of ideas jammed into this this book. It could have been thicker. That's still my complaint. But hopefully, as, as, as Rishad said, it could be 12 books in the coming. So uh, with that, Rishad, thank you so much for your time um, sitting with us, uh, walking us through. Um, and it was, it was enlightening. And thank you for your time on this. And thank you for inviting me and for your viewers and listeners for spending time. Awesome. Yeah.
I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it Then I go into the booth feeling nervous Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on a circle